We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured and Satellite on Make Time for This, probably a part of the Eurostep Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast family. On this episode, we are going to talk about the Multiple Time Academy Award nominee, The Zone of Interest. And we'll talk a little bit about its director, its writer, in a little bit more detail too. That's Jonathan Glazer. First of all, Andrew, how are you doing? wonderful um you know it's that time of the year where it's time to fill in some of the gaps of uh films i haven't seen this year some more readily available than others some showing up to my uh local independent cinemas uh shout out to the chelsea theater and the carolina theater they really you know treat me well as i go through this journey i was hoping adam i was hoping to on friday go see all the shorts that are going to be playing one after the other, but I will be away for work. So um, really tough beat there, but I'm, but I'm working hard. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to talk about a film that, uh, you know, hits, hits pretty hard and, and all the subtle ways. Yeah, you can say that again. It really does. Um, there isn't a film this year that hits harder. And, I'm I'm looking forward to unpacking it, to really talking through it. I think just first and foremost, we can get out of the way. It's one of the best films of the year. And I think the consensus is very much there on that. There have been very few, although there have been some notable dissenting voices, um, some interesting criticisms of the film, but I I think this is going to be one of these films that honestly maybe more than any other this year is going to have the staying power that what what did the year 2023 represent? What did it mean in movies? What are the notable works to come from that year that you know will continue to have relevance in the longer term? 
I think the zone of interest is number one. And that is in a year where other films like will fit that bill. Certainly Oppenheimer, and you look at its success on all fronts. We've already talked plenty about our love for Killers of the Flower Moon and how really hard kind of hitting emotionally that film is and the power that it holds too. It just feels like there is a little bit of something with Zone of Interest though that might even outrank that in terms of its staying power. I'm not going to get into trying to do it because I have seen plenty of people do it clunkily, but whatever way you want to apply it, there are certainly elements of our our current situation when you look at various conflicts around the world that can be mapped onto the zone of interest and that a lot of people have tried to do. And I, it might be all too convenient in that regard for people, but I just, I do think this is going to be a film that in the, in the kind of the wider span of time and the, you know, what is really important cinematically, like what represents this medium yeah, we'll have the kind of incredible success of Barbie and you'll have stuff like Oppenheimer in the mix too. But I I just think this is something something extra special. And in a way where the punch it packs, I think, might kind of land loudest of all. I mean, we'll get into all the specifics of how you feel, but does that... Does that resonate with you in any way? Are you with me on that? I just, that's from kind of the moment I saw it. I was like, this is kind of, it just feels like the most unshakable in some ways and the one that will have the staying power. Yeah, for me, it's it's uh, this and Killers of the Flower Moon have the, the most staying power with me, not necessarily uh, how that shakes out when they hand out the statues. But uh, I'm just really glad that no one told me to watch this and then Barbie as well. Uh, because, you know, once again, uh, this is a film that uh, sits with you long after you've seen it. And the same way Oppenheimer might have. Um, so it's, you know, it's a good thing that there was nobody like pitching triple headers with like Barbie sandwiching uh, Oppenheimer and the zone adventures. And that's what I'll say. But yeah, we'll talk more about our feelings later. But yeah, this this definitely has just like I think that just like lasting uh, gut punch power that truly great films do have, especially when you're tackling such a subject that will really resonate throughout human history, I think, Adam, because of just how evil we are as a species. <laughs> uh, but we can get into that as we uh, talk more specifically about the film. Yeah, we can. I mean, in, in some regards, I'm surprised by what it does feel like is the increasing profile of this film because hence for go on. Can you kind of tell me just like what the reaction this has been getting and like the talking points about it and the dialogue around it? Because for me, I knew this movie existed because I saw one trailer, saw it, or you told me that you saw it, then I went to see it. So I have not been really privy to any kind of just like talking cycle that happens with these films like as they're nominated for Oscars and then they get picked apart and then they get rebuilt and picked apart and all that kind of thing so if you can fill that in the I would say the discourse has come pretty late for the zone of interest and honestly a lot of the early conversation around the film centered on that element of it we may have touched on this I don't know what other film it might have come up with uh, I've seen a lot of people criticize 
let me let me phrase this in a different way even i see a lot of people like just on twitter i mean like literally just people on twitter uh criticize a24 this year for how they've handled their i guess the more celebrated films on their slate and how they've handled the awards positioning for them and what's made the cut and what's missed out and i think ultimately the iron claw is a film that has missed out entirely and that is probably factored into that to a significant enough degree where people are like how the hell does that movie miss out and where like where have you messed up how have you messed up so bad that that film is not getting meaningful recognition and for a very long time as well the zone of interest was receiving the same kind of criticism and a lot of people were tipping that this would be a film that when awards season truly came around and when the Oscars came around could be in danger of missing out this could be one that could slip out of the 10 for best picture uh, one that would probably naturally be on the bubble because of its subject matter and because it's maybe artier instincts just a combination of difficult watch and more challenging style which doesn't necessarily always kind of win over the wide varied body that is now the academy so for a long time the focus was on this was being released um in a very very limited sense for a very long time it was a very slow rollout targeting major cities but much much more gradual than we're used to in terms of expanding going wider and really i mean you can speak to this too in terms of your own experience trying to see it it does feel like it's probably last two weeks or so that it's only truly gone wide is still probably overselling it but it's the closest thing that a film like this would ever goes too wide and that is kind of on the back of the oscar nominations in its own right so for a long time a lot of the conversation that i saw from people who would just kind of be tangentially interested is um i can't see zone of interest and maybe a growing resentment as critics and people who had seen it at festivals i feel like this was a venice premiere um no it was can um played at can where i won the grand prix also played a telluride then and a tiff so like the, the the media run of all the praise for this film has long been out there and a lot of that kind of pushed back on plenty of people just being like well that's great i can't see it um blame distributor i think as it turned out a24 plays pretty well as more often than not they tend to do they've they've got the war season worked out very very well for a studio of their size no matter what anyone else thinks about them or the cult of a24 that is developed you cannot knock their ability to position their films very very strongly for awards and for oscars specifically um it ultimately is nominated for five academy awards Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best International Feature Film, and Best Sound. They are all pretty major awards. Um, the discourse, Andrew, <laughs> since then, honestly, has just been so, so dumb that it is very, very difficult to give it much credence. And I think anyone, I'm not even, I'm not trying to be facetious, I'm not being dismissive, but I think anyone with a brain has just immediately kind of brushed it aside um i have seen 
like this is not necessarily major critics there has been kind of vocal uh, some viral we'll say viral letterboxd actually reviews was something i've seen quite a lot of um where you've got two strands you've got the kind of letterboxd user who wants to make a quippy one line review for every film they see to try and get a couple of likes on there uh this is not the film to be trying to make quippy one line reviews it has not stopped some people and you have other types of users who are just our viewers who are absolutely appalled by this film because it doesn't portray the horrors of the holocaust and we're 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 watching the nazis go about their business what does this tell us we will get into all of the conversation around perspective in some greater detail um i just think that anyone who feels like this film doesn't show the horrors of the holocaust yeah You've just gestured for being over someone's head. It is so far over your, over someone's head. I I would honestly make the case that this may show the horrors of the Holocaust in a way that hasn't been shown too often, which is the we have seen plenty of people give us the more, I say visceral, but so often it's not visceral because it becomes something where it feels like this is like a signature like of how a World War II film looks like. All of that even saying it is repulsive, but there's there is a kind of movie that just became stock and trade that people have a sense of what it is. There is something to be said for positioning you so close to the most horrifying place you can be dropped in at this time, and then to be in the same living space, sharing that living space with the people who are the perpetrators of this. And also to just realize that it's like, they're not innocent parties. Uh, no one would ever mistake that. There are moments in the film where uh, all of those people very strongly implicate themselves and they say things that are honestly pretty appalling, but there are plenty of moments where it is just like tangential to their life it is not as important as the fact that oh we got a beautiful garden isn't this a great place to live and that is that is truly horrifying because that does kind of get to i don't want to it's, it's a cliche to just talk about banality of evil with this film at this point because it's so obvious and clear that that is what we're dealing with but i do think in all variety of ways and we look at all the things that as a as a species uh, humanity has been true over the last few years and so much of that again comes back to how does this happen how can anyone all these questions that have always centered and you know the idea of oh well it would never happen again well the reality and how it happens in the first place is more chilling really and it's not just to be like it's not to be that these people are completely detached, but it's just it was just part of their day, right? It was just their job, and they were able to ignore not the sights, but the sounds mostly, the smells likely too, of what was going on around them. And I think there's something incredibly powerful as an audience member of being subjected to the smells, not the smells. We just one thing we don't get the the sounds. Yeah. Um, being subjected to that feeling of you are in that house, but you can't, you can't go to the other side. You can't do anything about this, but you are going to, 
you're going to see dark building plumes of smoke in the corner of a frame every now and then, or you're going to hear the constant churn of machinery, of ovens, of incinerators, and you're going to have to reckon with just the extraordinary kind of baseline of normalized evil it takes for that to be a process, right? And the moments, I think, when we get kind of the 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 main character we follow, probably arguing the film, Rudolf Haas, um, who was a real life figure, who was the longest serving commandant at Auschwitz. When we see him talk about it and kind of talk in no uncertain terms about being a Nazi and about the final solution, it is very much in terms of process and it's very much in terms of being a middle manager and making a case to your superiors of, I can maximize the efficiency of this process. Like that is where the evil is here. But I think in terms of the film, what is most remarkable is this is not just like a, this is not a procedural director who's making this film. This is not someone who's just going, oh, that's an interesting framework. It is being matched with the cinematic tools and the effects they're generating to create the sense of horror. I've heard interviews um, with Jonathan Glazer, and I should have the name. I'll get it in a moment, but the the kind of the main the main sound um, sound guy on the film who worked on a lot of the sound design and soundscape and the processes they went through. They captured real life sounds of horrific events in places across the world over a period of years to kind of create the layers of sounds that are very much in the background that we're hearing semblances of, but the things that are so unspeakably horrific that can you create what those screams sound like if it's not a scream of, you know, somewhere where something truly unthinkable is happening? And I do just think the level of it feels weird to describe it as craft in this context, but just craft that has gone into the careful design of how this film is made and how that complements really what the source material is and what it wants to do for us is pretty astonishing. So To answer your question, I, I think it's been pretty hard to pick apart generally. You know, there's there's so much of this which is unimpeachable. Johnny Byrne, by the way, is the sound designer um, on the film, a regular collaborator of Jonathan Glazer. Um, I think if there are any like more interesting, more valid criticisms, they have generally come down to style. And any sense of the balancing act that's at play and whether it starts to feel like a gimmick, some of what we're seeing. For example, I can read one notable film critic, um, Mr. Paul Schrader, on his Facebook yeah. page. Um, I'll read Schrader's Facebook post. Zone of Interest, seen at New York Film Festival, is a great-ish movie. It is a textbook example of the distancing devices I described in the updated transcendental style of film. Static camera, no pans or tilts, planometric compositions, no overs, no foregrounding, center punch compositions, flat lighting, no music, heightened sound effects, no close-ups, long takes, expressionless acting. 
in transcendental style. So Sema, these distancing devices are used to force the viewer to find mystery under the surface. But in zone of interest, there's no mystery under the surface. Under the surface, literally next door is Auschwitz, a most familiar chapter in history and drama. In this case, the viewer knows exactly what's under the surface, having seen and read hundreds of films, books, documentaries, and photographs with the most famous of all concentration camps. A style designed to see the unknown is used for the opposite reason. The end result is more like a parlor trick than an exploration. I don't personally agree with one of my cinematic heroes, Paul Schrader there, but I do think that is an interesting critique of the film. And I, I personally think the stylistic choices are tailor-made for the film and they do elevate it to the height that it ultimately reaches. I do also think that that is the only room there is for someone to maybe be like, oh, what if you did it this way? Because I like finding fault with the product that is up there on the screen is I really think very difficult. And I just think it's disingenuous or really lacking any basic un underlying understanding of, you know, visual arts to watch a film like this and just be like, this isn't showing what really happened as bad. Um, this is showing what really happened as horrifying, absolutely horrifying. I think the only way someone could come into that is kind of entering the film from a really deep and troubled place, understandable given the content, and having a pretty immediate reaction setting themselves on that perch and not getting off and not really taking the film on you know, reasonable terms. I don't know. I mean, look, people are free to not like a film or not respond to it, but I a lot of what I've read out there in this film just feels very, very shallow where criticisms come. So that's that's kind of the cycles. I mean, when it finally the first weekend it wide it went wide, there were some incredibly dumb things going around on Twitter. And whether that was things that people had found in other places or whether that they were tweets themselves that's the extent of it. It hasn't gone through a cycle like you usually see. I think if it is to have a true cycle, if it is to be viewed as more of a climber in the best picture race, and honestly, I do think it is, and probably where it was once considered as something that would have come in at the back of the pack, I would not be surprised if this is something that lands more top half in terms of voting and could find, a, find itself in a sneaky high ranking not that we'll ever know um i would not be surprised if the situation in the middle east gets mapped onto it in ways that are not going to lead to the greatest honestly conversation about what we're seeing there or what we're seeing in this film if if there's just a laziness like there's there's a validity and it could be a springboard for things, but we don't live in a society that deals very well in nuance or detachment and just kind of sensible, reasonable conversations. And I, I think if have people you had try... any experiences with things like that lately, Adam? Oh, <laughs> uh, all the time. You're probably even re referencing something specific I've told you about that I don't even remember. But the reality <laughs> is, it could just be all the time. I mean, this is the world we live in. Oh, I did. I did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Shall I tell that story?
Maybe not. I mean, it's a pretty good score. It's a pretty good story, I think. But if you want to leave it, I'm sorry for bringing it up. No, I'll I'll tell the story. I'm look. I'm not gonna. This is not what I'm interested in our podcast being. So I won't. I won't get it into it. It is a continued it. theme of it is, things it, we've absolutely. had to talk about. It though. is. It yeah. is an extension of what we're talking about here. Um. I had the great pleasure of seeing the latest film from a, honestly a favorite filmmaker of this podcast, someone we've always really celebrated um, and hopefully we will again in the year ahead when he'll have a, a fiction feature film out for the first time since Widows. But I was looking enough to see Steve McQueen's Occupied City um, last week and I was looking enough to see it with both he and his wife and the writer on the project, Bianca Stichter, herself a director of some renown, her film, um, The Three Minutes of Landing, Four, Three Minutes of Landing, I believe, um, really worth seeking out for anyone who hasn't seen it. Again, touching on similar subject matter here in a really, really fascinating and moving style. But they were both in Dublin for a Q&A, so... For those who don't know, Occupied City is a five-ish hour, four and a half hour documentary, which McQueen and Stichter, who live in Amsterdam, had decided to make before the pandemic broke out. And the film was going to be an adaptation of the book that Stichter wrote, which was essentially the story of Amsterdam through the Holocaust, through... I believe it was like 2,000 different addresses, right? So it was just anecdotes of different people, what happened to them, you know, whether it's Jewish people who were persecuted, Jewish people who were rounded up, sent to concentration camps, whether it was notable figures in the community who went out of their way to help Jewish people at the time, whether it was locations where there were flashpoints between, you know, Nazis, whatever it might have been. It was kind of just telling the story of that through that period and the idea that McQueen had which is really interesting and I will highly recommend the film the film may come up in conversation in the weeks ahead we'll see um, he decided to essentially just shoot a contemporary contemporary footage of Amsterdam to go to all of these same addresses and show them in we'll say 2021 2022 whatever over a number of years and the voiceover will tell the story from the time and we'll see contemporary footage up against that, which I think is a really interesting idea in general, just to get a sense of the lost history of a place, the true history of a place, and kind of, I guess, um, the ghost-like presence that may always feel like it's there, but also we could just kind of pass by and give about our lives. And it's like... I don't know, somewhere that could be like a cafe now is just this site of incredible horrors not all that long ago. And then the pandemic happened and just culturally like the world changed. And so you've got all sorts of different stuff going on, right? You've got all sorts of different stuff going on in this film, um, which in just observing Amsterdam, you all of a sudden end up, there's moments where you're observing anti-lockdown protests, um, certainly groups of people who are I would say on the right of the polit political spectrum you've got other locations which all of a sudden are you know 
within a couple of years, they become sites for vaccination. The, the story just naturally evolved in a way by what the world threw up that added these extra layers that you could choose to apply as much or as little meaning to as you want. I would say, and this is what McQueen himself has impressed her as, and indeed when I was at that Q&A reiterated that the intent is not to like draw the modern parallels. The film is very straightforward. It is to show the places where these things happened, let the audience take in these stories, but we are seeing footage from today. And whatever today is, today is. All of that is the setup to say that this led to a Q&A in, I'll be honest, a place where uh, I saw in the Irish Film Institute, a place where you get generally great conversation and you would have more discerning film viewers like it's it's not just your average multiplexing the kind of person who goes there is going there with greater level of knowledge and generally the q a started great questions things are going very well but then it kind of takes a turn which is just reflective of where honestly the whole world is societally and the conversation shifts to you know what is it, you're showing people who are clearly on the far right is that are you comparing them to is that that went in a strange direction and certainly added a lot of tension. And then you've got Holocaust survivors talking about what the film means to them and how it's just this essential counter to the misinformation that's out there in the world today. And then the next question will come along. You have people talking about, you know, by the way, what's happening in the Middle East is a, is a genocide. And I was sitting there and I just, it was honestly, it was like, is an outer body experience because it just like I first and foremost let me make it clear this, this is the absolute epitome of first world problems I'm not making this out to be any kind of problems because the real problems are for the people in Palestine at the moment uh, but just this sense of it's very rare as much as we spend so much time talking about like how broken and fractured discourse is in the world and kind of the level of brain rot and I can say these things because as much as I feel very confident of what our listeners, where they probably fall on the political scale because they've listened to our podcast for long enough. Um, let's say if they were in the complete opposite to us, you could say these same things because both sides are just like, uh, they're all crazy on the other side, right? They're, they're reading the wrong stuff. They're not paying attention to the right things. Their brain has been warped by this kind of media or that kind of media. But to be in a room to take in an incredibly dense, impressive, moving piece of work for multiple hours to have one of the greatest, uh, most influential filmmakers on the planet there to talk about it and to then just kind of see just things unfold in a way that I, I think people are incapable of detaching from their own current existence to just take the lessons from what happened in the past, right? It's like, it's kind of skipping that step and just wanting to map it on. I don't know, is that some sense of trying to center or find, you know, your own sense of self-importance? We live in just as an important time and the atrocities now are unspeakable or uh, these people are being wronged now or... 
I just found it like kind of really troubling, but also very instructive as to how discourse is broken, which is not news to any of us, but like a real life living example. And I do think some of the zone of interest stuff is an extension of that. And honestly, I don't like, I'm sure Glazer is probably out in the world still. And like Sandra Huller and, um, Christian Friedel, they're probably doing like press screenings and stuff in places or academy screenings or Q&As just in some cities. I'm sure there is a flashpoint at every Q&A. I like, which is both understandable, but I do think it also can just miss the point. It can miss the point so much that then we ultimately end up cheapening what happened then, what happens now, because we're looking for quick and easy comparisons. We're looking to one up and to find victories where it's like some things are just so horrifying that you've got to, you've got to be immersed in how horrifying it is. And you got to shut your mouth and sit there and let that rest with you. I will, I'll share and maybe we'll talk about it. Um, honestly, this is probably like kind of a real fucked up thing. I did when you saw this movie where I was like, I really think you should watch Night and Fog. I really think you should watch Night and Fog. I think it's a complimentary piece to this film. I think it would be good for you. It would be instructive. And just generally, I do think it's something that pretty much everyone should see. For anyone who doesn't know, Night and Fog is a documentary film directed by the legendary French New Wave filmmaker Alain René. Um, it was released in 1956. It is 32 minutes long. And I'll, honestly, I, if you were to kind of talk to me, what are the most like moving things you've ever seen? It is funny. They probably come on opposite ends of the spectrum and deal with similar subject matter. And that could be, well, it could be Alan Renee's Night and Fog at 32 minutes. And it could be Claude Landsman's Shoah at over 11 hours. Um, there are very different ways to tell the story of the Holocaust to portray the horrors. Night and Fog, I would say, I'll let you speak to that too, but I, I think in some ways it is dealing from a place in the immediate aftermath, in the immediate aftermath of the liberation, a lot of the footage kind of as, as raw as you can get. Um, it's I, I suppose it's about ten years after, but there is footage that was gathered from right at that time. Um, it is a beautiful, like poetic, but like no bullshit piece of writing. But to me, it fills in the blanks, the gaps that might be there visually in the zone of interest, without again putting you, you know in an incinerator in the moment you get the visuals that in some ways kind of rank with it i think it's one of the greatest films ever if you were to ask me like what are the 10 greatest films as the way i put it to you if i was to have a sight and sound poll we did an episode on this and i'm pretty sure i put it in there um night and fog is always one that is like right around my 10 so anyone if you haven't seen it i'm pretty sure it's on like movie it's on criterion channel it's probably on max in the u.s do seek it out it's probably on youtube um but to return to the point, I think that was probably kind of an asshole move for me, as much as it might be enriching <laughs> to to be like, hey, Andrew, you just watched the zone of interest. Like when you get a chance, watch this too. That to me, that was another one of these things where it's like, I just, I cannot wrap my head around 
watching Night and Fog and it becoming like a, like needing to find the extra layer of resonance or relevance or using it for like a contemporary point scoring. I, uh, I just think we'd actually be much better and we'd be in a much better place to deal with contemporary problems and parse through the right and the wrong if people were better at just like giving the human elements of these horrors more time to sit with them. And that for me was a big part of my experience in the zone of interest because the human parts of the horrors, they are off screen, but it's a level of unease that I have very rarely felt in a movie and you come out of it and you can't help but think about it. That's quite a soliloquy I've given there because because of part you asked me for the story, you set me up. But um, whether it's from Occupied City to Night and Fog or The Zone of Interest, I'll pass it to you, Andrew. I don't know where you want to pick up on that or just you've seen two of those three films mentioned. What's what did you personally find to be your response or how how do you even begin to rationalize the kind of response that other people might have, could have, and arguably should have to films, I think, of that, like, just cinematic value, but on these topics that are of the utmost importance like night and fog to me is one of the most important documents of the 20th century end of like it may not have that reputation i, I think that is a problem <laughs> i would be if i was in education in some way i'd be like hey kids i'm gonna just like i'm gonna probably like mess with your heads for quite a while but like i think you should see this um, I think this is instructive and educational and very accessible and it's 32 minutes and it will land that it may have an impact forever. But how do you process all of that? I think other people should consider. I, I think consideration is kind of part of the key here. It's also, it's like you come out of the zone of interest. It's like, I I wanted to talk about it, but I also like it wasn't if you'd seen it, we weren't gonna be having a conversation after zone of interest or be like, Yeah, like why do you give that out of ten? Is that is that a what how many stars is that movie? Like it's just it's it's so far beyond that that I just think to me it forced me to engage it on a different level. And it seems it's the case for most people, but it's not for everyone. Yeah, first of all, your experience in the Q&A just felt like everything we'd been saying for the last year or so on podcasts, like like confronting you. as al It's almost like you were in a Boa's Afraid set piece <laughs> that was like uh, confronting you with, uh, in his case, a fear, obviously, but in our case, a thing we've been thinking about and talking about for the longest time. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences 
So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. There, um, there are layers to that too, which, I mean, maybe some people are listening from from Ireland or my part of the world. Um, I won't get into it, but the Israel-Palestine you know, if we're going to call it a conflict historically, um, there are very pronounced views on it in Ireland for reasons that have like largely been mapped onto Ireland's own history. So it is a, it has always been a kind of a touchstone and there's, there's certainly a different energy, understandably to the strength of feeling that comes from that. And, Dublin and Ireland has had its own problems in which we have completely, I mean, up until a year ago, we had successfully avoided the far right wave that had defiltrated everywhere else, um, where a level of, whether we want to just take it at a level of discourse or we want to take it about real life, you know, anger, hate crimes, just misinformed rage was there in evidence in society was represented politically. The truth of it is to this moment, it's still not really represented in the political landscape in Ireland in any meaningful way. And long may that continue. Um, but there have been flashpoints societally. We had, we had pretty horrifying riots in November, which were like all the more disconcerting for, for coming from nowhere in terms of we have certainly seen what's happened in the US, we've certainly seen what's happened in the UK, we've certainly seen what's happened really in honestly most of the Western world. But it was always such a remove from here that it was shocking when it's like, oh, this is real? And people are like, none of this stuff anyone's saying is making sense. And yet people are now trying to mobilize around it like in a visible and a loud way. Is it in a way where it's 
it's at a volume or at a level of support that's meaningful? No, it's it truly isn't. That doesn't mean it's not gonna get there. It doesn't mean you can't be com or you can be complacent about it. But so all of those elements kind of just come into the arena and what that represents. Just bizarre. But anyway, I don't wanna well, we don't need to dwell on that because it's a film that is very difficult to see at the moment. I hope people can see Occupy City easily and do check it out when it is. Um, but you are probably right to make me tell the story because it is. It's it's a film of the Holocaust. It's a film of persecution of Jews. And it's a film that certainly, as I experience, can spark a lot of the same kind of conversations that this one does. I mean, I think it's relevant uh, everywhere in the world like the thing i sent to you yesterday i hope excuse me hope would have been you know a more uh calm experience but the screening in my town at a theater i won't name um about uh a hate crime committed against uh a muslim couple uh in durham to unc students um i think about a decade ago now and like how that whole thing happens and the aftermath of it and like what we do which is the people that have so much hate in their soul and their heart towards people that are different than them um to bring it back to the zone of interest and kind of what you're talking about and uh kind of what i'm talking about but that like that violence based on hatred explicitly and thrown in your face and um just like really out there on the screen is something I think we see in films often. And that's very visceral and hurtful and painful to look at. And then the zone of interest, like you said, the cliched banality of evil, it, it really takes it to another level. Um, this is something that uh, you said to me, God, Adam, sorry. Like I'm dying. You're all right. Um, Don't worry. My, my cough is bad, folks. I did another podcast where if you listen to both, you would have had to heard me say that on this or on that. And now you're hearing me say it on this. But uh, like the notion that uh, this is a film that teaches you to listen early is what you told me. And not before I'd seen it, but after I'd seen it. And I won't, I won't give anything away about that exactly. But I think that's just an important thing to know when you're watching this. And like you said, it's, one person's like concentration camp is another person's like idyllic house in the country where uh Sandra Huller, uh, who was in the anatomy of a fall also, uh, which has got uh Oscar nominations as well. So big, big year for her. Uh, I think she's bone chilling in this film as uh Rudolph Haas's uh wife. I'm blanking on the character name at the moment, but uh, you've got the like the idyllic family life, uh, just like mixed in with the sounds Head, of gunshots. Hedvig, by the way, is the character. Hedvig, that's right. Um, and like friends coming out to have tea with you, mixed in with. I think this is the part that resonated with me the most, and it was just like the most gut punching to me. Is just like being the leader of a concentration camp, just being painted as like corporate ladder climbing, mm -hmm. and the mundanity of his job and he's worried about is he going to get transferred or going to get the promotion kind of a thing and like it's killing human beings living breathing human beings in an efficient way is his just like means to get that vp job he's always strived for and that's just like like 
so true and just so hard to be faced with in that just almost boring is not the right word, but matter of fact way. I mean, what is what is the military in any form other than yeah, this constant process of trying to climb a ladder? Like it's military people are obsessed to rank. Obsessed. Yeah. So uh, there are possibly, you know, scenarios where I don't know. Again, I'm getting into territory here. Uh, I am from a historically neutral country with as close to a non-existent military as it is possible to have. You know, if someone decided, Andrew, that they wanted to take Ireland tomorrow, the only thing that would be stopping them would be who is going to intervene and try to prevent that. That is the level that's at. So uh, the idea of the military has always just kind of like on a very basic level been so alien to me. Um, in a way that in a country as big as yours and like kind of at the heart of the the military industrial complex like America is, like you have the complete opposite end of that scale. Um, but that's an element that didn't surprise me because I've always found it unusual, but it is like being in the military is just about like endlessly. How can I, how can I move up? How can I, you're like, you're in this rat race and I've got to keep going. I've got to keep climbing. And in a lot of ways, I think that's when militaries around the world, when they do find themselves in a place where they're carrying out atrocities, part of that is if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it and he's going to get your rank, right? I think that's, in some ways, that's the culture that it, it can generate. It takes very strong individuals to push back against that. This film is certainly not about individuals. So that kind of, uh, I don't know, intestinal fortitude. So, yeah, it's it's very troubling. I mean, I, I will, I don't feel it's a spoiler to, to get through the thing that you alluded to. Which is uh, like one of the bolder decisions, like to just kind of maybe it feels bolder now. This is an Oscar-nominated film, and you're going to get a wider audience. It's going to be like, oh, there's a lot of interest. Oh, it's a film about you know the Holocaust or concentration. Let's let's check that out. And they're going to go into the movie, and the movie starts, and they're going to sit in darkness for like two or two and a half minutes with like a Mika Levy droning score playing. And it probably lasts long enough that they're going to get to this point where some people in the theater are going to be like, is the projector broken? Is there something wrong here? Where in fact, you are being placed in the dark and being asked to listen. And it happens multiple times throughout the film. And sometimes you hear score and other times you hear just, you know, environmental sound. Which is ultimately what that opening gives way to. It gives way to like the sound of like chirping birds and you know, life by the water side. Um, but it is. It's teaching you to listen right away because what might be innocuous to begin with is going to be very far from that later. And I think in playing up the sound and emphasizing it and being as creative as they are with it to that degree. It asks you as a viewer, I just think a much more pressing and more complex psychological question, which is to try to imagine 
how is it possible? Who are the people who could stomach this and just go on about their daily life where all this all of a sudden just gets kind of, I don't know, zoned out? And one of the more interesting things the film does is, I won't get specifics because we'll keep this somewhat spoiler free, but there is a visitor to the house. There are many visitors across the course of the film. But there is a visitor to the house who comes to visit where they're staying. I think he's quite taken in, happy for, you know, the people she is visiting, happy to see, yeah, you know, all the space, the incredible amenities here. This is a great thing. This is a great thing. This is a great thing. Until you've got to be there a couple of days and it's clearly too much to bear and she leaves, you know, almost in the dead of night, you know, not able to look anyone in the eye to talk about it. Because that's even, I think, representative of how you could come there, you could be, you know, kind of just oblivious or willfully ignorant. You want to turn a blind eye, but it wouldn't take long for that to break you down, right? To be like, I can't stick this smell. I can't pretend I don't see that smoke. I can't pretend I don't hear these screams. And I think that is, that is again, where for me, where someone like Schrader, okay, fair enough, has issues with the technical elements of this film, for me, it just, it works. It works so, so well because that is a case, that particular incident that I've described where I think the film is setting up perfectly what the character moment is. And we're then left with kind of one of our, one of our main characters being largely bewildered by like, what what happened? Why? Why? Why would someone have left? Where to an audience, it's immediately apparent. It's like, yeah, it's about time somebody left. Yeah, I was gonna mention that it's that like some of the criticism about just like not showing, but we get like an audience proxy for like, like what what's happening here kind of a thing how are you ignoring this how is almost this your life not just an audience proxy but a proxy for the kind of audience member who might have somewhat like unknowingly stumbled into this movie yeah, yeah. and is like oh yeah cool this is yeah sure i've seen like movies of the holocaust yeah, i was just gonna be sad and then they start and it's something very like kind of severe and different like it, it, it's that kind of proxies I've felt like to me too, which is someone who comes in kind of oblivious, ready to just kind of go with it, and then it's too much to bear. And we even we even get like the moment in the river, which is both uh, kind of being horrified something, but also be, I think being uh, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but being concerned about like residue or what might have like been on something and then caring about like the their own self-interest in being freaked out back maybe not but uh i i just cause... think that is that is maybe one of those moments where it's impossible to keep up the cognitive mm. dissonance that's central yeah. to what you're doing it's how can you explain that to your children and just carry on as normal how do you it's it's a place where it literally becomes impossible and it's not in your interest if you want to, you know, climb those ranks and keep your job and, you know, have this sweet gig that you seem to think you've got. It's like, you, you gotta, just, you got to turn like a blind that. eye. Just yeah. basically, that's that's how I take that. Like that, 
that scene is really disturbing and kind of fascinating. A24, to get back to that, I saw people like, there, it wasn't criticism of this, it's just even it's part of the <laughs> part of you could criticize like the distribution. So how do you market this film? And part of the counter to like trying to market this film is A24 were doing like Instagram like ads which were that scene that scene just like you be scrolling your feed and there may be an element of it where it's not going to land and i mean the scene is played out in a way that yeah you can just put that in front of everyone and like technically get away with it but i can't think of many more disturbing and horrifying things that you just be like oh yeah it's just out there like and that's kind of it's not flashy, it's not showy. I don't even know if it draws in, but that is also kind of what the movie is. Like, it's really, really fascinating. It's just, I can't think of a film like this to hand. I probably should have given this more thought and being like, what has come out like this in recent years? Because even, have you, I don't know if you've ever seen um, Son of Saul, the, no. the <laughs> film by Hungarian filmmaker Laszlo Nemes. Someone else, I actually was at a Q&A in the Irish Film Institute many years ago for uh, Sunset, Sunrise, Sunset, Sunset, I think it was his second film. It's a great, underappreciated deal of recent years. Um, Son of Saul, though, was like kind of a similarly all-conquering in a critical sense, not to this level because it was prior to, you know, foreign language film breaking through in a major category way that now can happen um but probably wasn't far off the kind of cultural impact in some ways in like real movie circles it's just even at the same time it's there's something for for everything that is like arresting and harrowing and honestly very impressive technically about that film it's it's not the same thing it's it's still it's still like a beat or two closer it's not as far removed from I don't know Schindler's List as this is, and I, I think there's there's a way in that is maybe less alienating or less frankly upsetting for a lot of movie viewers. I, I think the the kind of the unsettling nature of the film too. We probably talk about more. I don't know how much reading you've done or if you've heard podcasts or what. Do, how much you know about how they actually shot the interior scenes in the house. Do you know anything about the shooting for this? I don't, but before you reveal all to me, uh, I will tell you that like some of the most effective scenes and kind of developing a sense of normalcy for me were just like, like they're, I guess stationary camera, like camera in one side of the house, someone's moving through the house. We're not necessarily following them, but they're moving and then we're getting them on another stationary camera i assume so it's just like the constant motion of people moving about a house like you would do while you're doing errands or chores or whatever it may be like uh it's both the like primary characters and then we'll get like i guess i don't know if servant is the right word or whoever it may be but like they're they're slaves they're yeah they are polish slaves who hey <laughs> Lucky you, you know, you're not on the other side of the wall. We're going to make you a slave here. Um, what if I was to tell you that the interior scenes of this film were shot with no crew on set? I would believe you. 
So that effect that you're talking about was achieved by film shot uh, digitally, which uh, I think is also worth noting. It has a very digital feel to it. Um, part of the design of that was Glazer and his DP, Lucas Zal, um, the great cinematographer who is a frequent collaborator of Pavel Pavlikovsky. He shot uh, Ida and Cold War for Pavlikovsky two of the better looking films of recent years this is a very different visual style and part of that comes down to what they're doing with the cameras um there were 10 cameras just stationed positioned in set spots in the house and constantly rolling and no crew were on set and i i'm assuming there was a line of communication that would seem logical but the actors were left to essentially play out these scenes as if they were living in this house beside Auschwitz and to be there on their own which is the kind of thing I guess you can just talk about and we can be like oh that interests are cool and move on but I think to to position yourself as one of the actors in this film um, it's, honestly it seems pretty traumatizing when the artifice of this being a film set is not present there is no artificial lighting or next to no artificial lighting in the film. They use practical, natural lighting. So this was not a set with, you know, crew members everywhere with lights just off out of frame. While the actors were performing this film, there wasn't just the usual constant reminders of the artifice of film taking you out from this. Oh, you know, it's just a movie. It's just a movie. We're not really in this place at that time. That's not really happening the devices that were you know chosen to shoot this film the way that the film was captured honestly plays into kind of a, a sense of isolation which left the actors to live more in the reality of yeah you're here and you're living in the moment and you were pretending what's happening on the other side of the wall isn't happening so I think it's very interesting, but it works honestly at a deeper level where to try and I've seen people tweet about it and talk about it, or it's like I really hope those people and obviously those children uh like got some really good therapy paid for coming out the other side of this because spending a lot of time in that house with that setting being the context not feeling like you're in a film all the time, that is that is pretty Harrowing and hardcore. Daniel Day Lewis might still be there if he had been in the lead role. He just would have stayed. He would have thought he would have thought he was Rudolph at this point. Uh, wow, that I see now uh, in the Wikipedia that it mentions that. Did you <laughs> did you just say the the way that Glazer described it? Uh, did I? I don't know. Big Brother in the Nazi House. Did you say? I... That. I have heard that. I don't know if I just said that. I don't think I mentioned Big Brother, but yeah, I've seen, uh, I've seen, and heard a, him describe it as that. That's a great way of describing it. And God, yeah, that's a interesting way to work. Um, and I, I do feel that those scenes are pretty effective, and like, like it probably did for the actors, just establishing that that is just the reality now, and it's also just like. Like it feel to me like like the okay international films this year Adam so much great dog work 
the dog mm-hmm. in this film is uh, there's two right or is there just one i can't remember um i think i'm one mixing, dog that's my memory. i think i'm Sorry. i think i'm like in my mind i'm seeing the dog from godland like scurrying up next to this one even though that's not happening but this dog who's like you know upset when his uh his buddy's in like a room away from him and he's just like you know navigating around like the the nazi dog just like a a perfect bit of like uh, I don't. I but... don't like you making the dog out to be a Nazi. <laughs> no, I don't no, know no, if the no. dog has heard that label. <laughs> you know, uh, I saw David. Ehrlich I don't say know today, if he's a member of the party. I say I saw uh, David Ehrlich say today that uh, Dakota Johnson is uh, innocent and Madam Webb's being bad. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna level that with the dog as well. Like it's not his fault, but just adding that to add an additional sense of normalcy to the situation. It's like. Like we talked about in Killers of the Flower Moon, where we were talk, people were complaining, like, "Well, how could he have loved her, and you know, she have loved him, and thought he was in love with her, and blah blah blah." Well, it's like the the boring, normal, everyday uh, routines being done by an evil person is just as scary as like what they're carrying out, because you know that they're capable of a committing all these atrocities, climbing the ranks in the military and b they're also capable excuse me going home and being a family man there's a degree of there's a part in this film where it's like some of that uh happy wife happy life thing kind of starts to rattle a little bit and a scene that is a result of that is probably and a, a scene uh two scenes and then what is not shown once more that was one of the more horrifying moments of the film for me uh just the the beginning the part we don't see and then the aftermath and knowing for a fact that uh sandra huller's character hedwig hedwig as you said uh would would be more upset about an indiscretion than you know what's going on over the garden wall kind of thing it's just like bone chilling i think like Again, and I maybe it's not. I I actually haven't seen this one once. I haven't had a chance to see it again since I knew more about the production. But that's if we take even that approach to how they shot the interior scenes. Something as simple as a scene which we see replicated twice, um, which is when Rudolf Haas comes home late at night, has finished his day, overseeing the extermination of all these humans at Auschwitz and we've already seen a scene earlier in the film where he takes off his boots and we see the blood at the bottom of his boots and the boots are like immediately whipped away to be cleaned by again one of these people who's essentially a slave and it's just you know I don't know can we call up by the grace of God by you know the greatest I don't know the most fortunate misfortune is alive and that's the only thing going for it here but that is what you're that's I mean, to what extent that is alive to be you know cleaning the nazi the blood off the nazi officer's boots but we get this scene where twice we get scenes where Haas arrives home and he is going through honestly a very interesting house in terms of design it's quite kind of labyrinthine which makes it interesting for these scenes too but he's switching off to all the lights room by room and something like that honestly lands for me in a different way when you just imagine the actor 
there is no crew on set. He is literally walking through this house. He has come in in his character, like to get yourself on spot. You've come in after a long day of, you know, killing Jews, uh, gypsies, LGBT people. You know, we want to whatever, whatever kind of this is what you've done. You've come home. Got to make sure the lights are off everywhere and how you're performing that. It is very different for an actor to get to move through a space that kind of unencumbered that naturally. And it maybe is part of how it just accomplishes that extra level of unease because for the film to work in the way it does, it has to make you kind of sick at the pit of your stomach at the moments even when you feel like you're really removed from it. And you never feel like you're that far removed. But a scene like that where... You know, you're not as it's things have stopped for the night. Things are quietened down. You're not seeing smoke out of windows or kind of coming over the fence in the garden. You're not hearing screams. How do you still make that so disconcerting? And it's the fact that this man has what literally walked across a courtyard, come in taking his boots off, and then he's going in to see his wife and kids. He's like, better make sure the lights is off and he's moving through that space. Like things like that all of a sudden become so much more effective. Um, I just I'm like endlessly endlessly impressed we haven't talked honestly a lot of the elements we, I mean, we haven't talked about Glazer's direction even though we have in so many of the decisions we haven't talked about the performance I think Sandra Huller has got deservedly so much praise for this film and certainly uh, Anatomy of a Fall has kind of bolstered that like those two things are kind of they're complimenting each other and putting her in right at the forefront of all conversation of the year in film. Understandably. So I do think Christian Friedel's performance is going under the radar a little bit. I think he's brilliant, really, really brilliant. Um, have I seen him before? No, I haven't. I haven't seen. He's in the white ribbon. I don't remember him from that. I'd have to rewatch it. To see, doesn't seem like I've seen it before. He's gonna be in the next series of the White Lotus, which what a what a case of whiplash that is. Um but I really thought he was incredible. And I'm there are not many roles more difficult than that. You're not going to get the audience's sympathy. That is not the purpose of it, but you've gotta you've gotta be compelling. You've gotta anchor this thing at the same time. This is a this is not a man who is like overflowing with charisma, who's outwardly compelling, as you, I think, rightly described it earlier. He is middle management trying to kind of climb up. Um, and it is only the backdrop and really the context of that that makes it all the more interesting. But you got to carry that and it's got to be convincing. And you've got to be someone who does seem to plausibly like switch off at moments and be like, yeah, this is my wife. These are my kids and I love them, but also someone who is not just checking boxes and has bought into the level of evil that is right at the heart of this film and the atrocities that were committed at Auschwitz. So I, I really, I was so, so impressed with him. I think performances across the board, I think all of, I think the, it looks great for the choices it's making. It is not a, it's not a visually flashy film, 
so that it can certainly play into that. But again, that natural lighting too, it has a sheen. It has something cold, clinical, digital. And a case where digital is actually, I think, quite clearly the best medium to tell this story from a time was far removed from digital because it, it gives you the chilling effects that you want for this particular film. Mikalevi's score is incredible, as always. Anytime Mikalevi is involved with any project, it's it's really, really something. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I just found out Sandra Huller's uh, dog was uh, the ac- the dog actor. So, like, just oh. her, her in dog movies this year. Uh, shout out to Snoop from Anatomy of a Fall, a movie we haven't talked about. And we'll talk about, I guess, in the context of the Oscars. I don't think it's in my top 10 of the year or anything, but it, yeah, I really liked it. Um, yeah, I, 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 I want to shout out her performance in both of these films, like you just said, because they're very different. One's very subdued and kind of uh, subtle. And this one's she gets she gets to do a lot of like she gets uh, her moments in both. I think. Uh, funny enough, she probably peacocks more consistently in this film. Yeah. Um, she's just she's empowered to like that's you know she is married. I, to I was going to say Commandants. she gets more Cruella Deville in this yeah, than sure. she does in Anatomy of a Fall. Um. Uh, like what does she call herself? The Queen of Auschwitz or something? She says that's yeah. what Rudolph calls her, and it's like you read that on the screen, you're like Jesus Christ, like, uh when we see earlier in the film, she's like taking the lipstick from someone that is clearly, you know, just been killed. They're just, Uh, it's like basically a new train rolls up to Auschwitz. People get stripped of all of their possessions. And we see it's not just her. It's I already, I assume they're friends or maybe wives of other officers. And it's basically like delivery of, you know, here's the stuff for the people who won't be needing it anymore. It's, it's essentially like let's go shopping for her. Yeah, exactly, and it's it's also horrifying, and they b- both play it perfectly well. I mean, I think uh, I don't I don't, don't want to say I was worried, but um, when there's a point in this film where he's like removed from the situation, and kind of we get him on his own, kind of progressing in his uh journey up the ranks and sure. some of the scenes we get in him just like navigating this world both professionally and socially i think those are some of the times where his like you said his subtleness and not lack of charisma but just there's something about his face and just like the kind of reserved like by the book demeanor that he portrays in these scenes that is really working because you can see like there might be, and especially as we get towards an ending, I won't spoil, but like you... We will, like I want us to talk about it, but we'll put a spoiler warning because I want us to yeah. talk about one element of that before we finish. But for him in particular, where it's like, you can see like the mask starting to crack a little bit and the way he keeps it bubbling under the surface and not really erupting until it's a physical reaction that's something that like you just couldn't control. Um, yeah, I think he's like... I, I keep trying to kick people out of the be- best actor race, Adam. So I won't do that now, but I will say it's one of my favorite leading performances of the year. Um, 
you know, let's put a spoiler warning because I want to I want to do two things. I want to talk about the ending and I want to actually ask you about Night and Fog and your response to that too, because I, I honestly it's not a mystery. You will have you will have seen the scene that made me be like, oh, Night and Fog, like anyone who's seen Night and Fog, I think next time you see it, it will do the same for you. Some of the choices made towards the end of the zone of interest certainly bring your mind right back to it. Um. Spoiler warning, if you've not seen The Zone of Interest, that's to be very, very clear. Um, you should stop listening. This is integral to I, the emotional payoff of the film. It just sounds even so cheap as if like there's not a strong emotional impact throughout this film, but like the kind of... I don't know. The knockout punch in some ways, or... Just, I think, a really interesting choice. And one that is kind of interesting, too, because we keep seeing it over and over again to some extent this year. Um, we see some element of the filmmaker wanting to address head-on. Even now that I think of the like the descriptions and how I was talking about Occupied City earlier and what McQueen is doing with that and mixing the present day with the past, it's, again, there's, just, there's quite a lot of this at play. Um, we see Hoss at a a party, a gathering of Nazis. As he is in Berlin, he is honestly, in some senses, fighting for his political life, which is very different than fighting for your life. Looking to maintain his stranglehold, um, on Auschwitz for quite a long part. Of well, it's probably only a few minutes, but we see a good stretch of him trying to do that. Um, he loses that battle, but it then becomes his wife being like, "Just please ask them to let us stay here." Well, uh, just the craziest thing imaginable. But please, I know you've worked you elsewhere, but you let us stay in the house right beside the extermination camp. Just please, we can't, we can't move away from here. Um, we see how. End up in this kind of moments of contemplation. He has a telephone conversation where he calls Hedwig, and he honestly delivers what is one of those most outwardly like evil. Again, it's like I don't know what you want from this if you feel the evil isn't there. Um, where he talks about how he spent a large chunk of this party essentially just like daydreaming looking at all of the people in the room around them and imagining how he would you know exterminate them all how he would gas them in this space and it goes to something which i don't know we don't need to fully unpack i guess or deal with the interpretations of what exactly we see we see him in a stairway and he essentially takes a turn and starts to become unwell we are aware that he is going to be unwell um due on i guess his medical state at that point but we then break with him in this hallway this stairway in berlin in the 1940s and we are shot forward to auschwitz present day auschwitz to what is now, in part, you know, 
the site of a museum, the site of tourists, the sites where people go and they, I don't know, uh, try to remember, try to come to terms with the horrors, try to gain some understanding. I don't know. I've never gone. I've never had the urge to go. And yet at the same time, if I was in Poland and nearby, would I, would then I feel that's probably something that someone should do? Maybe. I don't know. It's, it's such a kind of, it's such a unique thing, honestly, in terms of places you can go, in terms of encapsulating or capturing a certain, like the lowest ebbs of humanity. Like, I can't think of too many spots on a planet where you could just be like there and you could just it's like you look you want to still feel it you want to still kind of because this the sense of it the weight of it is still here so we essentially see just like what is now i guess a normal day at auschwitz which is like these women cleaning exhibits like polishing windows sweeping floors sweeping floors of what would have been like gas chambers incinerators just very heavy heavy stuff but also the kind of again if you're gonna have the issues with I don't, which I don't see as kind of something that is honestly deserving of that like I don't think this film needs this particular sequence to land it certainly wouldn't have for me but for anyone who is making this case of oh what you don't see what you don't see Glazer is not letting that off the hook because he's he's actively bringing you into that space now. And he's, I mean, you see what some of the exhibits look like and what they're made up of still. Like, it's very, very clear. Um, Did, did you do any reading on Haas himself? Uh, I did, actually. Uh, I, I found out after the fact, after seeing the movie, that he was hung uh for his crimes and can we get a hell yeah in the chat r.i.p bozo um is kind of my reaction to that but was there anything else i i know he kind of tried to pin uh everything on hitler and himmler and he was like oh i treated everyone fine um the abuses were committed by my underlings and also from the top down i'm just a cog in the machine kind of nonsense is i don't know where you were going with that but th <laughs> there's my take Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, the only place I guess that I was going was, yeah, I believe he was the last person to be executed 
in Auschwitz. Um, he was sentenced to death by hanging, hanged basically beside the crematorium that he once oversaw. And I am going to say there's obviously some clear intent in that. The film doesn't want to kind of give you a neat and tidy up. Rudolf Haas died on this date at Auschwitz by that's that is not the film we're dealing with here. Um, but it was something that at the request of former prisoners, at the request of survivors, that his execution was carried out at Auschwitz. Um, there were were one hundred witnesses present, former prisoners, high ranking officials of the Polish government. Not only was he the last public execution in Auschwitz, he was the last public execution in Poland. Um wow. So I I do think that scene is obviously something that I think we can draw comparisons to, for example, the, I I can't spoil that in the spoiler section of this, but the scene at the end of Killers of the Flower Moon, for anyone who hasn't seen it, that we talked about at Lent, and there actually have been, there have been more instances of this, and I believe there are films, there's a film I haven't seen yet, and honestly conversation for another time has, has its own weird rollout and discourse around it, uh, maybe I'll see it soon, but seems to be maybe exploring these kind of what some of these final scenes have done in a more, what if the whole movie was doing something like that? I don't know. We could revisit that. Um, I, just, I I think it's a masterpiece. I'm, I don't want that to feel, and I hope no one listening feels that that's being cheap, and because I think we've said it certainly three times this year. <laughs> um, but this this is a year where that's what it is. The the kind of the the heaviest hitting of the films deliver and deliver in a way which is not comparable to what you just get on any given year. There's no guarantee that we will see a film like this for quite some time. Maybe that's just in a broad sense. I think in a more specific sense, I don't know if there's a guarantee we'll see a film like this again about this subject matter. Can I just, uh, I don't need you to, because I didn't prep you really to talk about it again through this, but I just, having said now to the listeners that I told you, you should go and watch Night and Fog. I'm aware that anyone listening to this might be like, oh, maybe I should see Night and Fog. I've, um, was that evil of me? Is that a good idea? How is the... I mean, the connection, obviously, I mean, the subject matter is the same, but I mean, even visually, the cues are very like for like for the ending of this film. But how did you find that experience and processing that film in conjunction with the zone of interest? Because you didn't even just watch it kind of in isolation as its own thing. Maybe at some point in your life, you do that and have more power, it'll have less power. I don't know. But how did how did that? land for you as kind of an additive piece to what you picked up from zone of interest i think they're perfect companion pieces because obviously the film we just discussed is uh you know not subtle but it is it's uh tell you know via sounds but don't necessarily show and night and fog is you know you've got that like you said that great piece of writing and that like uh just kind of narrative over everything you're seeing but it's also fully head-on visually addressing the atrocities that were committed i mean we see uh the gas chambers we see emaciated human beings piles of bodies 
to the point where it's like recognizing even a single person would be impossible because it's just all together the i mean the shoes as as you mentioned in like the museum or something just a horrifying image uh so the shoes I think... the shoes and the hair i mean are the two images oh god from yeah. from night of fog that are like i think the hair in particular as being the one that we don't also see in design of interest but it's just like it's burned on the the back of my eyelid it's like anytime i think about that film that image would reoccur to me and I think you telling me to watch it is fine because you you know me and you know that this is something that I'm going to process in a way where I feel like my opinion would be that it's like an essential viewing for anyone that's a human being and their reaction to it helps you determine whether or not they're a sociopath <laughs> or a psychopath. Is that the right way of saying that? Because... Like, I, I think of, this is going to be very weird, um, this statement. But in watching these two films and just thinking about daily life, um, if I was, like, on a bus sitting next to someone, I struck up a really good conversation with them. You know, we're two strangers. We have a nice conversation. We talk about, I don't know, Adam, a sports team. We like a movie. We like some music we like. And then we go our separate ways. And then one day, I'm the leader of some kind of thing that has to do that person harm. And I see their face and I'm just like fully flooded with like, oh, I, I know that person to agree. I don't really know them, but like, you know, they were nice. I was nice to them. We got along. And then how like in these scenarios, people can't even have that like base level of human recognition in another person to not just go along with just like legitimately wiping out large swaths of human beings because you're told like not individually, but as a group, uh, there's something that needs to be dealt with. It's just like trying to relate on a mass level and to, to mark something as wrong or something that needs to be dealt with and not think about it on a person to person basis, just like boggles my mind. And and then you see it in just such the broadest sense, like Night and Fog. I it, you should watch it if you know you're someone that like appreciates the history of telling stories and documentary on film. But you should also see it if you just like the never again mindset that people try to have about things. Like this should drive it home more than anything. But also just like know what you're going into. Like Zone Adventures, you can watch it, be horrified and. But also, like, you're, I mean, at least you're not going to have images in your head that aren't going to make you sleep at night, whereas Night and Fog, like, will have that happen to you if you're not prepared for it. But I don't think you're an asshole for, like, making me watch that. I watched it, and the first thing I said to you was, like, yeah, fucking first, oh, sorry, Ty, uh, first day of, junior year of high school, like, all right, we're watching this. Uh, (laughs) Like, if anything that, like, that would make you like mistreat another human being just for existing. Like how do you watch this and come away with like that kind of worldview just makes no sense to me. I also think something like never again is at this remove and in the wider scope of history, it's no remove at all, but it's easy. It's easy to become something that's akin to lip service. It's an easy thing to say. Thoughts and prayers. (laughs) For sure. There you go. But 
part of what's out of interest shows is, you know, well, there are those who will divert their eyes and they will, you know, close their ears, close their eyes and just get on with what kind of suits them. I, I look, I may be cut out for more and maybe I've probably watched more and that has exposed me to some stuff, but I, I do not think it is a bad thing for people to be horrified by horrifying things. I, I, I honestly, I don't, I mean, I'm not talking, this is not talking about like a scare in a horror movie. This is some real life stuff. Those are the most important events in the history of humanity. Humanity being a weird word to use to describe any of this. Um, I find something about when Son of Interest is a film that I think, you, you know, I don't have a specific example. So don't worry, anyone listening. This is not about you because I haven't had this conversation. But it's the kind of conversation you could have about difficult subject matter all the time where someone you can have talking about a movie and they'd be like, what's that about? And you tell them what's about. And they'd be like, oh, that sounds like a bit of a downer. Like, that's not quite for me. I don't, I don't, like, at some, like, deep, I don't get that. I just, I don't get that. It's like, guess what's kind of a downer sometimes? Life. Guess what's a lot more than a downer sometimes? Like, humanity. What we do to each other, what we have done to each other, what we will do to each other. Um, so Night and Foggy is one of those things for me where it is undeniably upsetting. But it's... If you're not engaging with that, if you're not prepared to engage with the horrors in a real sense, in the viscerality, I I don't know. I don't know. It's not the full picture. And that's honestly, that's kind of part of what I like about Zone of Interest, too, is because I had part of a picture. I had a picture from all of these different sources, whether it's from books, whether it's like to, to, to the Schrader point of this is a story that's been told so many ways. I do think a part of the picture I was missing was the part of the picture where I'm dropped in that space and I'm, imagined, and I'm forced to imagine what it sounds like and what it smells like and grapple with the fact that... Because, again, I think it's easy to just be like, yeah, there's a group of people who did this to other people. That's easy. It's easy to say. It's easy to say, God, how terrible that is. How could anyone do that? But that's not real. You're not at really kind of grappling with that or comprehending that or trying to make an effort to be there in the same way that you are when it's like no this is what it was like you're there now listen look around you look at what you see and look at what you don't see look at what you're prepared to trade in for that this is what these characters did the film is not in any way trying to give you the nazi perspective in some sense of isn't this a cool gimmick? Isn't this a cheap trick? Isn't this an original in that hasn't been done before? Like, is it somewhat original? Yeah, it is giving you a different framing device in some ways compared to many of the films that have been made in this time. But I do think it is also... It's exposing an audience to one element of that story that is not necessarily front and center. And honestly, maybe for those kind of people that I talk about, the kind of people that you could hear on all sorts of films, 
be a film about other things. It'd be a film about slavery. Yeah. It'd be a film about slavery in America. You'll hear people be like, I don't want to watch that. That's but cool, I guess. What? But what are you gaining from that? It's like, well, you don't want to make yourself feel bad about something that happened. It's not my fault. It's like, I, I don't. I don't know if that's how we should be living our lives in a way that's going to make anything better. Where, again, to, I guess, circle back to some of the conversation earlier, where viewpoints are somewhat framed by feeling like we can come from a place where blame is absolved from us. I wasn't alive then. It was nothing to do with me. And God, no, I don't want to... There is something to... I don't know. Letting yourself experience the horror in the closest way you possibly can which is not even coming close to those who had to actually deal with this both in the place at that time and those who had to pick up the pieces in the aftermath but if you're not prepared to do that work i i don't know how much thought you're really giving to this i think that's where you end up in a place where you know what this stuff does happen again and can happen again because it's it's just a historical event that people know about and it was bad and they were the bad guys, but we're not the bad guys and we could never be like them. It's You're not dealing with the humanity of it. It is something that there's still a level of remove, a level of detachment. I think Glazer tries to make something that does grapple with part of that and break part of that down. I think it works really well and for that I'm grateful. I mean, it's a truly great film so do i uh can i briefly bring up a that i'm happy about an alternate reality with this film that did not exist do you know what the book sure. is about um i do i have not read the book i'm not gonna say i know all the ins and outs of the book but i know that the book is essentially a pamphlet version of this and a story that is an entirely different track and Glazer I mean this is a Martin Amos novel he's adapted so this is not just any old writer this was a very um, reputable and well received and highly thought of piece of literature and there was a great excitement when oh Jonathan Glazer is adapting this novel and he sure did adapt and he adapted it in a very different way which is much better suited to the screen but I don't, if you want to give more detail on the actual specifics of that, the floor is uh, too, My too long didn't read uh, version that I've grabbed from Wikipedia is it is about another Nazi officer that wanted to nail the non-Rudolf Haas's uh, wife. And yeah. that, that would have been much worse. <laughs> so this was much more effective in my opinion. It's really just... The, the actual the zone of interest, which is what the Nazis referred to as the area around Auschwitz, that is the commonality between the books. That was just that idea, that setting, which captured something of Glazer's mind, and he thought there's something really interesting to explore there in a movie. Um, we we should probably wrap up by just talking a little bit about Glazer. Like this is this is a kind of towering filmmaker but he works so infrequently his films are such events i mean this is a decade since under the skin it was nine years between under the skin and Burt before that four years from birth to his feature debut sexy beast um this is one of the most acclaimed and celebrated music video directors of the 90s and into the 2000s 
Although, again, not someone like remotely prolific in that regard. Not a kind of long, sprawling list of videos. He's done some of the best and most compelling commercial work that any, I'll see anyone ever has. Um, his two, I think he's just on two. His two Guinness ads are like just some of the most iconic. Like I, I, I not to lean into a stereotype here, but I would have seen them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, thousands of times as a child, and long before I ever would have recognize you know merits of film as a medium let alone begin to understand how some advertising is different to others and how you know the tools of the visual media may be applied to i don't know commercial capitalistic ends he has a couple of guinness ads that were like they came on tv and you would be like sitting upright being like what is going on here? What is this about? Um, he's just an incredible filmmaker who doesn't work all that often. And for him to choose this, this is a big departure too, really from honestly anything he's done before. I don't know what he will do next or what direction that will take. I really would like it not to be 10 years before we get another Jonathan Glazer movie. He's 58 years old. If that's the kind of pace he could use to work at, there will not be many more to come. Um, we didn't really deep dive here, but I think Sexy Beast is just an endlessly like entertaining, whip smart like genre piece that is kind of ultimately sufficiently adjacent to so much stuff which is so much schlockier and really is not fit to lace its boots or be in the same category, but like all the guy Richie you know, That's that, just that kind say. of wave and like the Matthew Vaughn stuff that honestly is probably still like tracks that have come true to this day. And Argyle's out at the moment. That's a Matthew Vaughn film. And again, that's coming from the under Guy Ritchie's wing and that whole branch of filmmaking. It's like there was a time where Glazer, as a feature debut, made Sexy Beast. And I don't know. I wasn't engaged with all of this at the time, but I'm sure there were. I'm sure there were critics who tried to position him as part of that particular branch of British filmmaking. And so, therefore, he follows that up with something as as odd and unsettling in plenty of ways as Bert is. And when he comes along nine years later, he makes something even more unsettling in Under the Skin. And it's funny, Under the Skin 2013, that is right around the time where my relationship to movies was changing. Um, like in a meaningful way, I was into movies at that point. Um, I was doing my undergrad degree where, yeah, I had aspirations to do some movie stuff with it, but I wasn't, I wasn't in a film program at that point. I had a greater curiosity and I started going to see more, but it would not have been at the place where I am now where I'm seeing, you know, anywhere between two to five new releases a week. I did go to see Under the Skin. Uh, kind of as like, oh, there was a cool trailer and this seems like an interesting like kind of sci-fi dark thing with Scarlett Johansson. And I remember going with some friends who were probably even less film literate than me at the time. And 
just all like having our minds blown by everything in that film by just truly like there are very few films that really feel unique that you're like there is no other film like that there are no other directors doing something like that that create a certain feeling but also images that are genuinely alien and that's what he managed to do in under the skin one of the best films of the 2010s without doubt and to then come back and make the zone of interest a film that is like necessarily more somber and sterile that is just this to go from sexy beast to the zone of interest and stop at Burton or Skin in Between, that is a range that very few filmmakers can even come close to. Yeah, I saw uh, Sexy Beast for the first time, not because of even this podcast, just because I saw it was on Criterion, and I was like, sure, let's give it a shot, and I thought it was incredible. Uh, uh, Under the Skin, I haven't seen since it came out, but I have memories of liking that, and then haven't seen birth, but yeah, and then you tie it all together with Zone of Interest. I mean, it feels like three distinctly different filmmakers, but also like that's kind of like an art in itself of him just being able to have that versatility and diversity in what he's doing and for like everything I've seen to just hit the mark. Uh uh I'll get around to birth at some point it is also on criterion and i pay for that adam so damn it i should uh get my money's worth there but yeah a guy i didn't know uh a ton about honestly going into zone adventures and now you know filling in my knowledge gaps and i also want to shout out uh in ian mcshane and uh sexy beast like basically the same character from John Wick. Ian McShane is uh, <laughs> a legend. 81 years old, still kicking. Let's go. All right, that's it. Um, please go see The Zone of Interest if you haven't. If you haven't, I hope you didn't listen to that spoiler section. If you did, hey, I don't think it's going to completely take away from the experience of the film. I reckon you go and see it. I reckon you go and see it, and I recommend you just think about you know, the human beings involved in this. And don't rush to be like, what if I was to map this onto contemporary life and horrors taking place around the world? It's like, yeah, there's plenty of time to intellectually work through that, but I just think that it's such a reductive way to view art and also a reductive way to do, to view the horrors of the Holocaust, the horrors that we're seeing take place in the Middle East today, in Ukraine today, like everything is not like neatly folded and designed for you to ascribe meaning, put it in a box and move on. If you enjoyed the episode, you like what you hear, subscribe where you get your podcast. Let's make time for this. Uh, can you remember what we said we were going to do next week? Are we doing Iron Claw? Uh, Is that what we said? Or are we... I think we're going to do Iron Claw, and then following that, uh, Yorgos Lantimos. I don't know. We'll see on Yorgos, because we might just run out of time. 
I know we did plan on that, but we may have to do our own, our alternate Oscars, um, depending on the weeks. But yeah, that's kind of, that's the outline of things that are in the hopper anyway for the weeks ahead. Our own definitive best of 2023 will be coming up soon. I will be honest, Andrew, I am very, very close to done on that front. I, to some extent, have been waving the white flag in recent days. And just being like, you know what? There are a few things that I know I'm still going to get to before that comes around that are kind of major. And other than that, I am done with trying to seek out anything I might have missed. And I have been watching films that are, you know, from before the year 2023. And that has been invigorating. But I, that's going to that's gonna come soon. Um, I personally think I've got two films left to see that may meaningfully factor into our discussions. Curious to see where we end up with that. We also do other podcasts. Andrew and I talk Milwaukee Brewers, cruising for a bruising. Elsewhere at GSPN, we've got the main feed of Eurostep Podcast Network for all things Milwaukee books. We've got the Eurostep and Win in Six, two books podcasts, the one feed, Time Windish, Ron Caddy, myself, Jordan Tresky. You'll find us all there talking books. And we've also got talking to tundra on the network for all things green bay packers jordan and newmack have you covered there as always thanks very much to all of you for listening thank you Andrew. thank you adam <laughs>